Father, what shall we render unto you for all your mercies? What shall we bring to you from our own efforts or hands or justice? How shall we say thanks to you for your grace, for your mercies, for your kindness, for your goodness to us? We bless your name. We worship you. We confess to you our many sins and transgressions. We confess to you our inability to please you on our own while we give thanks because we are perfectly accepted in Jesus, because we are united to him. Father, we come before you praying for your glory and for your honor and for your kingdom and for your will to be done on earth as it is done in heaven. And also we pray now for the provision to those in the Dominican Republic who have suffered great loss as a result of this unexpected storm. Father, we pray your blessings upon the churches who called out or called off their services and canceled their gatherings and will now be facing a lot of destruction and turmoil. We pray that you may be honored and glorified through this sad event that they may be able to help preach, serve, facilitate things. Father, we pray that you have mercy on those who have suffered loss, those who have suffered the loss of relatives and friends. Father, we pray that you remind us all that this is a cursed world and that we are longing with the earth, groaning inside to be released to the glorious liberty of the children of God when Jesus returns. And we pray, hasten that day. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Have mercy on us. In Jesus' name, amen. What is a Reformed church? Paul wrote to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, Paul was going to Ephesus where he had left Timothy to set things in order in the church. And as he was still away, he wrote, until I come, until I arrive, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And this is the word of God. Two weeks ago, I, I started sharing with you in light of the celebration, October 31st, 27, uh, 1517, about what Reformation Day it's called. And I started sharing with you what is a Reformed church. And that day, October 31st, marked the commencement of what has been called the Protestant Reformation. It was a combination of events, political, personal even technological, with the invention of the printing press. And from there on, a change took place in the Western world, as we know it, in the sense of the Protestant Reformation coming to the life of Christianity. And we've said that a Reformed church, a Reformed Christian, is a church, it's a person committed to the five solas. And those five solas, as already mentioned, and I'm just going reviewing what we covered, was not something that any reformer wrote about, but those five solas actually were coined 
between the 19th and 20th centuries as a way to summarize what was the gist of the Reformation. And we said that a Reformed church is committed to a standard that has been called sola scriptura. And by sola scriptura, we mean that the Bible, the Word of God, the books of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and the books of the New Testament, 66 in total, are our only rule for faith and practice. That was not a coining of the Reformation. It's actually a coining from the 4th and 5th centuries uh, before that. Augustine, Chrysostom had those standards. We will only be guided in terms of spiritual life, corporate life, in terms of our Christian walk, of our conscience, only by what the Scripture teaches. And also we said that one of the tenets of the Reformation is sola fide, justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but the statement is by faith alone. Because there's not a mixture of faith and works, it's not a mixture of, a mixture of faith and my religious duties. Faith alone is the standard or is the means through which grace operates to what has been called forensic justification. Justice, righteousness, is imputed, not imparted. Even though we can say that there is an element of imparted righteousness to the Christian, yes, we walk following the steps of Christ by the Holy Spirit, but the justice that justifies, that puts us in a good standing before God, is imputed. It's accredited to our account. It is a forensic, a legal declaration of acquittal. And that imputation of righteousness, which is nothing else than the obedience of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, which is put into our account, is obtained by faith alone. And then sola gratia, and that is grace alone. For you have been saved by grace, caris, a gift, and this is not of ourselves, but it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one should boast. For we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Only grace is the instrument of salvation. Only the gift of God imparted, given, monergistically, meaning only by the action of God, without our intervention, without our earning, without our deserving it, is the means to be saved. Grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that should be at the center of the five solas. Christ, as Tony read, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. There is no other name given to man under heaven by which we must be saved. And that is what we covered. Now we continue where we stopped. That's the end of the review. Soli Deo Gloria is the fifth tenet of what marks a Reformed Church. And by Soli Deo Gloria, we mean 
The glory is God alone. He's not a shared glory. You might remember that passage from Isaiah 42 where God says, Yahweh is my, is my name and I will not give my glory to another. I will not share my glory with any idol. I will not share my glory with anyone else. God is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that is the ultimate purpose of salvation. Salvation is of the Lord, says Psalm 3.8 and Psalm 62.1. And because salvation is of the Lord, the whole purpose of God's redemptive plan is to exalt God and God alone. Some people say, why did God allow sin? Why did God ordain sin? Because we would not know dimensions of the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God unless sin would have taken place. Because it is very easy to love the lovable. We read a parable in which the man invited his friends to his wedding, but then he ended up inviting those who were unlovable. The lame, the crippled, the poor, those who, who, who would think about throwing a party for the homeless. <laughs> that is grace. You throw your best party with your best meal, with your best presentation, and you pick up all the homeless you find in downtown Miami. That is the gospel. And we do not appreciate grace until we realize how homeless we are, spiritually speaking. How poor and devoid of any merit, of any goodness, we are in and of ourselves. That's why the ultimate purpose of redemption is to gather all things around Christ to the glory of God in the language of Ephesians 3.20 and, 20, and 21, to the glory of God throughout all generations forever and ever. The glory is to God alone, not to any saint, not to any angel, not to n nobody else, not to any person, only for God. Now let me make a side note here about what... I called, it's my own coining, I don't think I invented it, probably I read it or heard it somewhere, but I call this fractional reformed people. Fraction from a fraction, one-third, two-thirds, four-thirds. Because I have heard this or read this. Well, I am reformed, but um, I am 3.5 reformed or four points reformed. And I want to say this. Honestly, I hope, I hope, I don't guarantee it, <laughs> with humility. If you are a fractional reformed, I'm sorry, you don't get it. <laughs> you haven't understood the deal. Because total depravity, if you really, really understand what total depravity means, what being spiritually dead means in trespasses and in sins what being completely and utterly unable to choose God in and of yourself if you don't understand that that's the way we are then you will miss why election is undeserved this looking through the tunnels of time because God in his foreknowledge saw 
that we had a soft heart and would believe, that is not grace, that is works. Then God chose me because he knew that I was a good person, that I was kind of soft for the gospel. That is not grace, that is works. Foreknowledge doesn't mean that. Read the passage in 1 Peter 1. We were chosen to obey. It doesn't say we were chosen because we were going to obey. He chose us to obey and be sprinkled and be imbibed with the truth and be sprinkled by the blood of Christ. He did it according to the pure affection of his will. That is the language of Ephesians 1. He chose us in his own goodness. And Paul adds that element. It was pure affection, pure love of his will. Completely undeserved and unmerited election. And if that is the case, then Jesus came to die for those whom the Father gave him. Limited atonement, oh, I don't like the word limited, then call it particular redemption. Jesus didn't come to make possible salvation. Jesus came to pay the bill of those whom the Father gave him. His name is Jesus, the angel says. Name him Jesus, because he shall save his people from their sin, his people from eternity. He came to save them. He didn't come to take a shot and cast the net and see what fish comes in. He came specifically with a mark on those he chose from the beginning, before the foundation of the world. And for them to be saved, if they are dead in sins and trespasses, there's no other way to come but to be drawn. I love the passage in Hosea 11. I drew you with cords of love. I attracted you to me. And yes, some of us perhaps had to be drawn through an accident, through a crisis, through a major ordeal, through something big. And others were drawn just out of love and kindness and mercy. And God uses different ways to have irresistibly called and drawn those whom he chose and for whom Christ came to die. And since he did it, they persevere to the end. They are preserved to the end. There's no way they can be lost. Jesus paid. Now, you either see it in the Bible or you don't. But if you miss any of those milestones or those steps, I have to humbly say you haven't gotten the point of what it is being reformed. You may know a lot of anatomy. You say, well, I know anatomy, and the anatomy I like is that of monkeys. Well, maybe you're a vet, but you're not a doctor. You either get it or you don't. And I know it sounds arrogant, but it is, it is the doctrines of grace. And Paul says if it is grace, it cannot be works. Otherwise, grace is not grace. Oh, but it's a mixture. It's synergism. We both work together. Then it's not a gift. If you come Thanksgiving or you come on December 25th to my house with a gift and you bring this beautiful, awesome gift, and if I, instead of saying thanks, I ask you how much is it, then it's not a gift. You're selling me something. It's an Amway demonstration or whatever. It's a gift. It is grace. And if it is grace, it is all of God. And yes, the doctrines of grace exalt 
the glory of God and humble the pride of man to the end. Now there is a contrast that I want to bring. And I'm quoting Keith Fordham, who quotes Spurgeon. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, is a patron saint of many of us who are Baptists. And Spurgeon, at the end of his life, and he was talking against hyper-Calvinism, he says, Beloved, claim to the great truth of electing love and divine sovereignty. But let not those bind you in fetters when in the power of the Holy Spirit you become fishers of men. Divine sovereignty does not remove human responsibility. The people who go to hell go to hell by their own will because they reject the truth. Those who go to heaven go to heaven by the will of God because he drew them to himself. Now when we're preaching, we don't know who is who. So preach your heart and your life out. Throw yourself into the cannon, as Spurgeon would say. When I'm, when I'm out of cannonballs, then I put myself in the cannon and pull the trigger and shoot myself at them. Because God will save sinners through the preaching of the word. Through evangelism. Through the opening of our mouths and telling them of Christ and of sin. God will not save sinners through the prayer meeting. God saves sinners and add to your church. That's the way he saves them and he adds them. But he adds them using the means of opening our mouths and preaching the gospel. Secondly, a reformed church is committed to the centrality of preaching. A reformed church is committed to the centrality of preaching. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 3, uh, 17 through 19, Christ did not send me to baptize, but he sent me to preach the gospel, not in the wisdom of human words, so that the cross of Christ may not be made empty or vain. Preaching the word is central to the life of a reformed church. I probably should add, preaching the word is central to the work of the ministry. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Again, Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you before the Lord, before his angels, before Christ who will judge the living and the dead. This is my charge to you, Timothy. Preach the word. Instruct, rebuke, exhort in season and out of season. Because the time is coming. And this is first century language. When they will have hardness of hearing. And they will amount for themselves teachers who will just do the tickling of the ear. Don't you love it if there's a doctor here. There's a doctor listening to me. Please forgive me because I'm going to say something blasphemous to your profession. But isn't it great when you just come out of the shower and you find those Q-tips and you just put them in your ear and you rotate them and they tickle you 
Well, if you're cleaning the, I mean, this is dangerous. You could really harm yourself. But hey, we're human beings and I'm not the only one who commits that sin, right? And it's fascinating. Oh, wow. Ah. Paul says the time is coming that they will not want to hear the word. They will not want preaching. They will not want theology. They will not want meat. They want someone to tell them nice things and tickle their ears. You have a cat. You have cats? How do you tame the cat? In the ear. And you see the cat going that way. And people do that with false teaching and preaching. And Paul tells Timothy, preach the word in season. And out of season, instruct, rebuke, exhort with all knowledge and doctrine and patience. If you have had this experience of visiting the low lands, visiting Amsterdam, for example, or Zurich, you may have been able to detect the difference in the architecture of churches. Old churches, you see this huge sacristy in the middle, golden, very laborious, with a big altar and a big table. When you visit a church that was designed as a reformed church, you see this in the middle. See no labor, you don't see any images, you don't see any laborious thing. All you see is a big wooden lectern in the middle. And there's theology behind it. <laughs> the theology is that reformed architecture followed reformed theology where the word is at the center and the preached word is at the center. Now when you walk into a Roman Catholic church, you'll find the big altar and the pulpit on the side. Because for Roman Catholic theology, the center is the Eucharist, is communion, not for Reformed theology. The center is Scripture. The public reading of the Scriptures, the passage we read at the beginning, that verb Paul uses, give yourself, devote yourself to reading. Sometimes they give it to us in a navigator's discipleship class. See, you have to read the Bible every day. No, Paul is not talking about reading the Bible every day. There was no Bible to read every day in those days. There were papyri in some of the synagogues. They didn't have complete Bibles even. Devote yourself in church to the public reading of Scripture. And as you read it and you exhort from it and you preach it, may it be Christotelic Christ-centered preaching. In a Reformed church, the gospel is heard every time. This is what we're about. To teach Christ and Him crucified. Some people mistake Hebrews 4 and think, oh, but if you're always telling about the gospel, that's, that's milk. Give me solid food. Teach me about family. Teach me about work. Teach me about morality. Teach me about Christian ethics. Teach me about eschatology. Paul told the Corinthians, I purpose myself to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. Now read his epistles. They are filled with all of those sub subjects, but they are always anchored in the reality of the gospel. Because this is the deal. 
You can have the best marriage. You can have the best home life. You can be the best worker. You can have all the money in the world. You can have a perfect balanced life. You can have perfect psychology. You can be the champion in you and have it discovered. You go to hell unless you come to Christ in repentance and faith. And he becomes your righteousness, your justice, and your salvation, and your shield. And our business is to tell you that is what you need. The rest is gravy. Christ is the meat. And coming to him in faith and repentance and following him is the meat of the gospel. Christ is the subject of scripture. He said that to the disciples. Luke 24, John 6. You believe Moses, you believe me. Everything written in the Torah, in the Ketuvim, in the Navim. It's about me. Psalms, writings, prophets. It's about me. I'm the center and subject of Scripture. It doesn't matter what we read. Show me Christ in it, because that is what the book is about. Now, what is the key thing in our day? Music. Announcements, programs. I've gone to churches. Good churches, I should say. Am I exaggerating if I say that between announcements and things, they take easily 40 minutes? And then the music, 40 more, and the sermon goes in like 35 minutes. That ain't Reformed. They may have the name of Reformed. But if, if, if the thing here is this platform to have many musicians and many instruments... And, and all the programs we have and all the things we offer for your children and for the singles and for the widows and for the divorce and for the young adults and old adults and for everybody else. Come, come and have fun. And there's no word, we're not reformed. We may have the name on the wall, but that is not a reformed church. Thirdly, a reformed church is committed to the unique place of the church. When I say the unique place of the church, I mean the language the New Testament uses to describe the church. In 1 Timothy 3, I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians 3, it is called the temple of God. The place where God dwells. The whole letter to the Hebrews. You know what it is about? <laughs> the temple, the priests, and the sacrifices have been replaced by Christ. Christ is the new temple. Zechariah connected to John 2. Some biblical theology there. And then applied in Hebrews 10. Christ is the temple. He is the tabernacle. He is a priest. He is Aaron. He is a Levite. He is a sacrifice. He is all in all. The church is the place where God dwells. Where two or three are gathered together in my name. Please read it in context. It is not let's get together and pray about my new car. Read it in context. It's talking about the church and even the church applying church discipleship or church discipline as it's been called there i am in their midst when god's people is gathered whether it is a handful of people like in our case or thousands upon thousands if it is a true church christ is there that is the imagery of revelation the spirit of god walking amidst the lamp or among or between the lampstands of the church another imagery from zechariah by the way the church is a repository of biblical truth, of God's truth, the pillar and banner of the truth. It is not that the church has the magisterium of the truth. Roman Catholic Church teaches that. 
It is the church that teaches you how to interpret the truth. No. The church simply holds the truth and shows the truth. But we have no authority over the truth. The truth stands for itself. And the church is the pillar and the banner that holds it and exposes it and has been given the repository of it. The church is the body of Christ. Did Christ leave? No, he stayed. He left his Holy Spirit, sealed every believer with the Holy Spirit. Believers gather in churches having the Holy Spirit, and they are the body of Christ on earth. They are Christ on earth, and he is the head. Oh, and I, don't understand, I don't understand that language. I don't think I do either, but that's what the Bible teaches. God's acquired people, God's special treasure, God's people of God, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people acquired by God that we might go and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Does that have anything to do with me? Oh, yes, it has a lot because we live in the Internet age. And even before the Internet age, we live in the age of man-centered ministries. What is that? You know what is that. That you know people who are famous and have these ministries that promote them. You say, yeah, but what church is behind this? Because I know John MacArthur is a pastor and John Piper is a pastor and such and such is also a pastor. But, but you have these, the ministry of such and such and they are famous and they are proclaiming truth and people are following them by hordes. But they are not associated with a local church. They are not under the auspices, authority, commissioning of a local church. There's something weird. Missionaries, mission boards, thank God for mission boards, but they better have local churches who see them and oversee them because Paul and Silas, the first missionaries, were sent from the elders of a local church in Antioch. That's what I mean that a Reformed church is committed to the uniqueness of the local church in the plans and the affairs of the kingdom of God. It was Cyprian of Carthage who said, He who has God for his father has the church for his mother. But also Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian affirmed these things. What does that mean? That you have to be part of a church to be a Christian? Yes. That's what it means. If you are a Christian, oh, but I'm, I belong to the secret service. I'm, I'm incognito. Well, unless you're under special circumstances, maybe you're a missionary, or maybe you're a military and you were sent to this God-forbidden, forsaken place temporarily, okay, I get it. Or you're a doctor and you have to do a specialty somewhere else, I get it. But if you are a believer, you will want to be associated with the local church, wherever you are. That's why we teach and preach and cornerstone the issue of church membership. Where's that in the Bible? I don't see church membership in the Bible. Oh, I'll show you. Paul, the apostle, taught 14 years by Christ directly. Okay? I mean, it's four years for a bachelor's degree, 
about 18 months for a master's and what, two, three years for the PhD, depending on how long it takes you, your research project. Where am I? Seven years there? Okay, Paul took 14. And you know who was the professor? Jesus. And you know what Paul did when he came to Jerusalem? He sought to associate with the disciples. Paul, first thing is, where are the church here? Where are the disciples in Jerusalem? And he sought to associate with them. Where was Paul found when he was sent as a missionary at the church in Antioch with his elders and deacons? And they sent him. He was serving with them. Where were the collections made for the work of the ministry and for benevolence among the churches or in the kingdom of God? Based on 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and 1 Corinthians 16 and even Philippians, among the churches. Spiritual gifts, where are they exercised? Based on Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, in the church. Oh, but I have this gift of prophecy. I have this gift of teaching. Okay, use it in the church. Because according to the New Testament, that's where you should be using that. Where are elders call, called from? Oh, God appointed me to be a prophet to the nations. Who did it? No, no, he, he appeared to me in a dream. Oh, really? Because in the New Testament, Paul commissioned Timothy and Titus, and even himself when he was walking back with Silas, visiting the disciples or with Barnabas, I forget who it was at that point, they appointed elders among the churches selected from among the churches. The same happened with the first deacons in Acts 6. They were chosen from within themselves. They were not self-appointed. The number of the disciples multiplied at the preaching of the word in the book of Acts. A number of the disciples? How, how? Oh, isn't this a blurry mass at a stadium that comes for this evangelistic campaign and nobody knows anything about anyone? N no, it's a number of the disciples that, were, that was well counted and multiplied and tabulated. Widows had to be signed up for a benevolence list that churches had. Widows that were older than 60 and they were put on a list. But... but Ephesus was a huge city. W weren't all the widows to be helped? No, Paul says, take care of the widows in the church and put them on a list. But what list? You figure it out then. You don't get it. <laughs> Most letters in the New Testament were written to churches at cities with their pastors and deacons and addressed to solve issues at local churches. And then read this letter to the church at such and such place. Pastors are called to watch over the flock which the Holy Spirit assigned them as overseers. What flock? The flock from within they are elected to serve. From within the churches. They are those who serve as those who will give an account. An account for what? For how they served the Lord caring for his flock. What flock? The flock found among the churches. And churches had the ability to even remove from their fellowship those who walked disorderly. Paul tells the Corinthians, the Corinthians, if any person walks not according to the way you have been instructed by us, disassociate from that person. So how, how come? If, if this is a blurry mass that nobody knows where it comes from, how come churches would have to mark individuals 
who were walking disorderly. Because Reformed churches also apply church discipline. As it has been called church discipline. Church adding and church removal. No serious reading. And I challenge any person. And I'm not a good debater. I'm horrible at debating. I don't even like to argue. But I challenge any person, even with a cursory reading of the New Testament, to show me untethered disciples from a local church. Show me. Show me. I follow Jesus, but I follow him on my own. Show me. Because I gave you 12 quick points, but I probably could give you 24 more. Church membership is biblical. Reformed churches are committed to church membership and to church excommunication, to both. I have had the sad experience to participate in church excommunication. Sometimes I think about it and I cry because I don't like it. There's a person that I even said, please forgive me. You were excommunicated. You know what that person told me? It is a good thing I was. Thank you for doing it. Only grace does that. Only grace does that. That is a reformed church. Fourthly, oh my. Committed to, no, Freddie, I'm sorry. <laughs> committed to God-centered worship. Freddie rebuked me for that. <laughs> Committed to God-centered worship. Regulative principle versus normative principle. We worship with what God has explicitly commanded. That is regulative principle. No, we worship God with anything that God hasn't forbidden. That is normative worship. Well, this morning's Spanish sermon was on the issue of Icons, images, and representations of the divine. And I basically, and somebody asked me, could you, could you explain that? Could you explain on the, the use of images and icons? Because I use them to worship, to help in my worship. He's a Roman Catholic person. And, and basically the gist of the sermon was, I, I, I'm not going to, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to get into your experience. Because that's your experience. But the book says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Of anything in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down to them. Thou shalt not worship them. Nothing. No, but it's not to worship. It's to aid me. Yes, but God says you didn't see any image in the mountain. You didn't see any representation. You didn't see any silhouette. The only time images are used for worship in the Bible is for pagan worship. And God was really upset about it. And brought judgment to Israel about it. Because we either worship as God prescribes or we worship as we think we should. Remember the story of Azza and the ark? Coming back from the Philistines, the ark was supposed to be transported through poles, carried in the shoulders of four Levites, the ark in the middle on a, on a tray. And Uzzah said, oh, but the Philistines sent it to the border in this chart, pulled by cows. That sounds cool. That's very contemporary. I can do that. And he took a cart pulled by cows. And there was a point that the cows came into a bad place and the ark was going to fall. And Uzzah says, oh, no, no, the ark of God cannot fall. And he touched it. And God struck him dead for his temerity. 
And people say, oh, but why? Because God said, that's the way you transport my ark. You put four Levites from the sons of Kohat, and they carry it in their shoulders. You don't devise how to approach me. And that's serious stuff. Now, the strictest adherent to the regulative principle does normative things too. The time and place of worship services, the order of the liturgy, how many hymns we sing. I've spoken about this. Music style, instruments, length and structure of the teaching, methods of discipleship. There's a lot of things the Bible hasn't prescribed explicitly. Nonetheless, <laughs> when it comes to worship, God is the center of our worship. Worship is towards God and for God. I do the best I can to make this thing interesting, even to the last person sitting there, the back seat. I want you to get it and be with me and try to avoid those of you who we call the sleepers. I do my best. But let me say one thing. I don't preach for you. I preach before God. And it's a scary thing. When in the middle of the night, I ponder on 40 years of preaching. And I say to God, I have blown it so many times. I have taught so many wrong things. I have treated people so many wrong ways. That if you do not cover me with the blood of Christ, my preaching today is my ticket to hell. This is serious, guys. This is not all, but it would be cool if we have some dance here and dance for Christ because this is a way to express my worship. Show me in the book and we talk. Well, David danced half-naked. You want to dance with half-naked people here? There is one seeker, beloved. One seeker. We want to be attractive. We want to fish in the ocean. Right, Darren and Freddie? We want to fish in the ocean. But there's one seeker. One, God. He seeks worshipers. We don't tailor services for seekers. I make this cool so more people come. The seeker is God. John 4.24 says that. He's seeking, he's seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth. So our liturgy must be what God prescribed in our accessory prayers, confessions, thanksgiving, petitions, scripture reading, the sacraments, communion, praise and exhortation with psalms and spiritual hymns and songs of worship. The form is important, but it's not decisive. God did not, did not prescribe pianos or clavinovas or guitars. I remember having this argument with a Reformed Baptist pastor that the clavinova, not the clavinova, it had to be a piano. Clavinova is electronic, kind of weird. But a piano, yes. But this, no. <laughs> so this has strings, and that's okay. This has strings, and this is not okay. According to who? Some people believe that's the essence of things. Well, that's not the essence. God did not prescribe four harmony hymns 
because Gregorian chanting <laughs> did not exist in four harmonies. That was an item that came much later in the Renaissance, perhaps, or after. He did not prescribe musical styles. He did not prescribe three-point sermons or 40 minutes or 20 or an hour. The Reformed worship paradigm is this. Let all things, all things, when we're gathered together, all things, 1 Corinthians 12, 5, be done unto edification. You see that color? Yeah, that color was chosen by someone seeking how to avoid distraction. How do they match? Somebody said, if we use these colors, we'll be better. Imagine this thing were red and this green. Have you seen those games of the Miami Heat lately? With that red court? See, jeepers, you cannot even see that on the TV. How can the players play? Well, that's the point. All things be done unto edification. Spend money on rewiring and connecting the sound and making things better. Unto edification. I wish I were more handsome and attractive to edify better, but sorry, this is what you got. But the point is, all things be done unto edification. That is a tenet and a paradigm of reformed worship. And let us not got, get lost in our dead orthodoxy. These people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let that person be accursed. Anathema. You can have it all right. <laughs> do you love Jesus? That's, that was Jesus' question to Peter. Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know all things. I blew it. I denied you. I cursed. I blasphemed. But you know I love you. Tend my sheep. Piper says you can spend 10 hours a day for 45, 40 years studying theology. If you don't have God as your greatest satisfaction, you have nothing. There are people who have big heads. You can even see them coming. Big head. They know everything. Let me ask you this. And at my ripe old age of 60 years old, having been myself a big-headed, because I come from them, they just, just God did surgery on me. Just like, <laughs> whatever. If you don't say with a psalmist, oh my soul, oh my soul, you said to the Lord, you are my greatest good. You don't know what I'm talking about. Find out. When you are praying, whether you are surrounded by everything you dreamed of, whether your bank account is exploding, or whether you are in the deepest misery willing to commit suicide, if you don't know the meaning of Asaph's words, whom have I in heaven but you? And aside from you, besides you, I desire nothing. My heart and my flesh fail. 
But you, you are my portion forever. If you don't understand that, you are not reformed. Even though you can quote Archibald and Charles Hodge by memory, I don't give a hoot about it. This is not about mind knowledge. Reformed or deformed? What are we? Sectarianism. Study history. Reformed, persecuted too. Persecuted Catholics. Tortured them too. Even reformed, persecuted, reformed. Persecuted, reformed. Do you think Bonian was in jail because of a Roman Catholic? Check out. Spiritual pride. I heard this with my ears <laughs> at a pastor's conference. We are the true heirs of the apostles. <laughs> we are the true heirs of the Puritans. <laughs> and my, of course, I swallowed it. Hook, line, and sinker, Troy. But I have to think to say it right. Practical hyper-Calvinism. Why bother evangelizing? We pray. Let's pray. Let's do. Tosh sent me text this week. Very interesting. Talking about doing, preaching about doing, praying about doing, philosophizing about doing, discussing about doing, moralizing about doing is not doing. Doing is doing. <laughs> Just do something. Legalism, moralism, the error of the Galatians. Having started by the Spirit, are you being perfected by the flesh? Some of us do that. The context was circumcision when we do that. We started with the gospel. We started with Christ. Now teach me now, how do I raise my family? <laughs> teach them the gospel, dude. Model the gospel for them. Confess your sins before them. Praise God before them. Sing to God before them. Read the Bible before them. Let them hear you sing and pray and say your confession of faith. That's how you raise your family. Yes, teach them to obey and teach them all of these things. Yes, I agree. But teach them the gospel. Live the gospel before them. Extremes, all oh, the extremes of the deformed. Remember that debate back in the 80s and 90s between MacArthur and Zane Hodges. Carnal Christian versus Lordship Salvation. You know what's funny? Both were defending the same thing. They were defending salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Both. And they both said of each other, they are speaking from hell. <laughs> what? They are both defending the gospel, but they accused each other mutually of speaking from hell. Why? Because they caricaturized each other. One who's preaching all is grace, is caricaturized as saying, it doesn't matter how you live. Of course it matters how you live. Said it before, grace comes with works. Beforehand, before the foundation of the world. Same grace that saves you brings good works. And the other one was saying, no, 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 you cannot claim to Jesus if your life doesn't show it. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but you will know them by their fruits. Whether you doubt your salvation or you have full assurance of it, stop looking in the mirror. 
Look to Jesus. Stop looking at your navel, at your belly button. Look to Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of faith. And if we are reformed, we're always reforming. You've heard the phrase, Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda Est. There's a phrase or there's a line that we drop. Secundum Verbi Dei, according to the Word of God. Oh yes, we're a Reformed Church, but now, now that we have Dyron in the ministry, I'm picking on you, Dyron. We're going to bring these sports teams and they're going to do a demonstration about wrestling and illustrate spiritual wrestling. Remember back in the days of power team, whatever? This is, this is old. I'm dating myself. Because we're reformed and we're always reforming. No, no, that's not according to the Word of God. That's trash. Don't bring that junk here. It's according to the Word of God that we reformed. And it's interesting that Jodokus van Lodenstein, I don't even know how to say that without reading it, he was speaking against formalism, dead formalism. Because our problem is that, that we become dead formalists. We don't want to raise our hands singing because that's, I don't want to be confused. We want to sing sober. I have joy in serving you, Jesus. Really? Because I don't want to be confused. If we are reformed, we have Catholicity of spirit. I love that passage in Numbers 11, 25 through 29. Spirit of God comes upon the camp. People start prophesying. And some guys were latecomers. Parable of the laborers. And they arrive late. <laughs> the Spirit of God comes upon them and they start prophesying too. And Joshua sees them and he runs to Moses. Moses, Moses, Moses. These guys who came late, they are prophesying. Like, no, they shouldn't be. They didn't come on time to a reformed service that starts on time. And I agree that it starts on time, by the way. And I believe you should come on time. But they came late. <laughs> and back there in the foyer, they start prophesying. And Joshua says, Moses, Moses, they are prophesying. And Moses says, Joshua, are you jealous for me? Are you jealous for me? Would to God that they would all prophesy. Would to God that every church would be filled with Scripture, filled with the gospel, filled with the Spirit of God, filled with the glory of God, and proclaim the excellencies of Christ, and hordes will come to the kingdom. Would to God, even if we remain little and unknown. That was Paul's heart. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, and will always rejoice. Amen. Bless your word, Father. And uh, help us to be reformed by the scriptures. Help us to be filled with your spirit. Help us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. As a church, as families, as individuals. In his name we pray. Amen.